Hello, how you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? It's Thursday, you know what day it is. It's the podcast, it's the Two Shot Podcast. And it's episode 97, three weeks, three weeks, everybody, three weeks, and it's episode 100. And have we got a very special treat for you. But more a special treats this week, I am thrilled and honoured to welcome Lem Sisse, MBE, that's right. Um... Now, if you don't know Lem, first off, you're going to get to know him particularly well in this podcast. And after you've listened to this, go back and search for his Desert Island Discs. It's dead easy. I'm not going to put up a link. It's dead easy. Go Desert Island Discs, Google that, put Lem Sisse in and listen to that. It's really, really beautiful. And you get to hear his music choices as well. And it was the one... I've been a big fan of Lem for a fair few years through his poetry. Um, But listening to that Desert Island Discs, I think may have been one of the first times... Um, that I'd heard him speak, and what an episode it is. And I'm not, I didn't know, look, I am so grateful for every guest that comes on this podcast, and I, I do love them all generally. Loads of people ask me, what's your favourite one? Well, I can't pick, but I have to say, I came out of the Malmaison Hotel in Manchester where we recorded this with Lem, and I was thinking to myself, I was on my way to the train station, that might have been one of... I don't want to say favourite, but certainly enlightening conversations that we've had. It was um, it did get a bit emotional towards the end, and we touch on loads of different subjects. Uh, but it is it is a spotlight on Lem's life and his upbringing, and being passed from pillar to post in the care system. We talk about um, injustices. We talk about self-preservation. Look, let's get into it, right? This is episode 97 of the Two Shot Podcast with the remarkable Lem Sisse. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Lem, you must be shattered, because for the past week, all I've seen you is running around foils and talking to loads of people. And just, I'm in London, I'm in Manchester, I'm everywhere. I have talked to hundreds of people this past seven days. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people, actually, yeah. for putting radio and stuff. Um, um, probably been busier than I've ever been in my life. You caught me right in the middle of a of a, a whirlwind. Calm, but in the middle of a whirlwind. Exciting, though. It's got to be. Today, Craig, today, it's number one bestseller in mm. the Sunday Times. Today. I know. The day that we're doing this. It's amazing. It's incredible. What a day to do it as well. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's a perfect day to do it. And last night I did uh, a reading in uh, Manchester, in Manchester at, at home with um, lovely Julie Hesmondorf. Oh, friend of the podcast. She is a friend of the podcast. She, and she told me last night. She said, you know, she loved it and she's done it. She knows oh, yeah. you, obviously. And, well, uh, we never met until she came on the podcast. I will I tell a lie. I will win it as an Edinburgh festival last year and we bumped into a friend of a friend yeah. who knew her and we sat there for all of five minutes and I'd always wanted her on because she just always seems like a decent person and you know when you go I really hope that when we sit down and we hit record that, they're, that, that they are who they are that she, she is who she is who she is isn't it funny yeah. that we're, yeah. we're all looking for people who are who they are and she came on stage last night and she she is who she is isn't yeah. it? and she was who she is last night. <laughs> <laughs> but we're all looking for our tribe, aren't we? We're all looking for our people. This comes up so much on the podcast when I talk to people. Yeah. It's what we're searching for, the, the like-minded people. Well, I was thinking about you the other day when I was listening back to a few bits and bobs of episodes for all sorts of different reasons. I never really go back and listen to them fully, but I do listen to little snatches or I remember things from them that are quite poignant. And when I went to Hebden Bridge to speak to Jonah's policewoman. I heard that whole interview. And I was thinking about her, and I was, and you came into my mind as parallels of an artist, because what she writes from with the songs is from her heart, and from grief, and pain, and love, and romance, and all these things. And that's why, when I was going, oh, I wanted to buy her, and I went, I'm gonna buy her a lovely book of poetry from you. And I wasn't expecting it. that, and I heard it. I heard it, and I wasn't expecting that, and it was just beautiful. And then she mentions Kate Tempest, yeah. who is on the front of my book, yeah. you know, and yeah. who is a great example of somebody who writes from their heart and who doesn't want to separate themselves from their audience, yeah. and yet is performing to a, quote, audience. Yeah. She wants to break down that idea of uh, performance and person who's not the part of the audience, you know, she wants to sort of magically draw herself off stage into the crowd, watching a person who's on stage and feeling a part of that person, do you know what I mean? She mm. wants to do that mirror trick that we all want to do, which is close the gap between them and us, because that's us. Yeah, of course it is, because if we hold the mirror up, there we are. Absolutely, absolutely. Or, or we hope. <laughs> it's, you know, people see us on stage... Uh, and that's a wonderful thing, but somehow something about being seen also can separate you from the people that you're with. Mm. It's funny, isn't it? We, we talk about finding our tribe in life, Any, anybody finding their tribe. We do that with an audience, and yet in many ways you can actually separate yourself from people by having an audience, you yeah. know? Does that make sense? Absolutely. You know, you've got to fight for the right to say no. Actually, you know, this is this is a there is a contract going on between us, and I want you as an audience to be aware of that contract because yeah. I am too, and we can still enjoy the suspension of of disbelief. Yeah, is it? yeah absolutely. Do you know what I mean? We yeah, can yeah. enjoy that and know it's us. Yeah, you know, imagination is part of everybody's. Everybody deserves it. Sorry, I no. just, you know, that's what Kate Tempest does. Absolutely. I remember when I was, because we're in Manchester now, obviously yeah. talking, I remember I was back in Manchester some months ago when her album came out and, yeah. I, and I had time, I 
I put it on and I just walked around Manchester listening to it. And then at the end of it, I started to sit down in Albert Square and process that, have a bit of a think on it. And then I went back and listened to it all again. <laughs> Which I think you have to do yeah, with great no, work. Because it's a gift that keeps giving, it's isn't the, it? It is the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, you're absolutely right, actually. More than a... Even if you give somebody a vase as a present, what, the, the reason that that's a gift that keeps on giving is because of where the person puts it mm. and how the person then relates to it. Yeah. It's not the vase, it's the consistent reminder of what it symbolises. You know, this is what performance, acting, poetry is all about. It's about, it's about allowing the reader to, to find the relationship with the poem as much as the poem itself. And everything changes Beautiful. when that person is in a different mood or where they are in their life. You know. Oh no, absolutely. It, that's it, why you can that's why you can see a piece of theatre when you're sixteen and think, oh God, it was Shakespeare or it was this, that or the other. Yeah. I think I loved it, but I'm, you know, I didn't understand it. And then when you're fifty you can understand it. It's why it's good f- I think it's good for young people in schools to learn poetry wrote, I know this sounds like, you know, the boy stood on the burning deck, it can kill poetry for them, but actually as they get older, they start realising what that poem meant. As they grow. Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is a great example. A lot of people are at school going, oh God, I've got to do this, you Mm -hmm. know. Uh, And then as they get older, they're like, blimey neck, this is about environmentalism, this is about life, Mm -hmm. you know, so a poem can, can travel with you. And it takes, it, it is as much about the people, the person, as it is about the, the poet. And I think that's what Kate's doing, I think that's what I'm doing, I think that's what yeah. you're doing, I think that's, as with the podcast, you know, you're opening up and set, you're opening the artists up and you're saying, oh, we have the same, uh, the same struggles and the same um, resolves and the same journeys as everybody and, 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 and because we're on stage we can allow other people to go, oh, I can be on that journey. Yeah, I've seen, I've heard it in your podcast. You know, they just draw me into a, draw me into a. Well, I've been drawn in. Haven't I? Oh, so <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so pleased you have. I mean, it's a real honour for me because I've loved your work for such a long time. You know, but I think everybody needs to, even if you're on set or you're reading some poetry or you're doing a Q and A or you're on the theatre, you want to create a safe space. That's exactly what. That's that's. that's very true. That's what Julie said last night, actually. She said, this is your safe place, isn't it? This is my safe place. <laughs> but I think, it's, but I think it's true. I mean, we'll get to it later on, but obviously I want to talk about the report, which, for people who don't know, we'll discuss it later. Yeah. And I have my own theory. So I, was, I was quizzing myself. Was I quizzing? Yeah, I was. I was asking yeah. myself questions. Yeah. And I was thinking, that's what you're doing when you quiz yourself. I was thinking, why, why, or why? Why would you do that? Why would that's you a do really that? good question, because that's what most people will ask. It's, a, it's I, a good question. I think I know, but I think we've probably already just answered it in what we've just been talking about. Possibly. <laughs> but anyway, we'll get to it later. Just totally confuse the listener. <laughs> <laughs> what is this report? Hey, well, he's look, coming back to it later. We'll so back to it, he said that. You see, that's the thing about this podcast, which I, I kind of adore. It's unstructuredness, in a way, and the fact that with... Every person, because everybody's different. We jump around people's time frame of life. Yeah. And I, I like that. I enjoy that. But when I was thinking about you, I was thinking, I think we need to go back to the beginning and start at the beginning. And we can't assume that uh, a lot of our listeners will know 
your story. So I think, if we don't mind, I think that's where we should start then. We're going back. We're going back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll so, buckle in. Okay. So, at the age of... Ooh, well, when my mum, I mean, when my mum uh, gave birth to me, must have been either straight away or a month after I was born. Mm. Uh, she was in a mother and baby home. Uh, she came to England just to study. She yeah. had no intention of staying. She wasn't. England wasn't wasn't part of the colony. She was from Ethiopia, which yeah. hasn't been colonised. Sixty six. She came here, found herself pregnant. I know the hotel in Greece where I was where she, I was conceived. Nobody should know the place that conceived. You know what I mean? That, that's a story in itself. You know, wow. the, the story is how can some? Why would anybody want to know in what conditions and where they were conceived? And how did you find that out? My mum came over on Ethiopian Airlines uh, because my father was a pilot for Ethiopian Airlines. Right. And my mother was from a big family in Ethiopia, and my father was from a big family in Ethiopia. And because it was my mother's first time travelling abroad, my mother's father asked my father's father <laughs> if my father would look after a chaperone to England. <laughs> now, if you Google, you'll see a picture of my mum, and you just know that my father said, why, of course. <laughs> Not a problem. <laughs> Not a problem at all. <laughs> So the Ethiopian Airlines flight stops over in Athens. Right. It doesn't come directly to England. And there is a... It was then called, I think, the King's Hotel. And in that hotel I was conceived. My mum was 21, my dad was about 27, 28. Uh, and then my dad went back and she got the final part of the journey, which was from Athens to, to England. Mm didn't know that you know my, I was in her stomach at the time then when she was seen as pregnant at the college that she was at she was sent into a mother and baby home in the north of England like 150 miles away from where she was in Bracknell now this these mother and baby homes and I met I was talking to Steve Coogan's sister last night right they are this is why culture's amazing Craig because culture will document the undocumented things that happen in our society Steve made a film called Philomena. Yeah. Now, up until Philomena, these mother and baby homes weren't really spoken about in society. Philomena established that in the 1960s, something that I already know, mother and baby homes were all over Britain. Women were coming over from Ireland who were pregnant and they were, they were, they were giving birth and the, the babies were then adopted and the woman was sent back to her community. Mm. Not just from Ireland, actually. There's a lot from England as well. So my mum came in the middle of this sort of farming structure that was all over England. The primary purpose was to get the women to sign the adoption papers. Remember, they were at their most vulnerable. Mm. They were between adult, childhood and adulthood. Many of them were just girls. They were so women. Yeah. Isolated from their families, made to feel guilty by the nuns, signed the adoption papers. They'd never heard the, the word adoption before, probably most of them. And my mum said, I won't sign the adoption papers, I want him fostered. So the social worker gave me to foster parents and said, treat this as an adoption, he's yours forever, his name is Norman. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was obviously Ethiopian, so I'm of colour. Yeah. So it's Lancashire in the 60s. So he was thinking, just... 
Call him Norman. Nobody will know. And you'll fit in. <laughs> and I did. I actually did, yeah. actually. Yeah, no, I stuck out like a, you know, I stuck out like a sore thumb, but I fitted in. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think there's a lot of us like that. It wasn't colour. It was that I actually stuck out. I was that kid. Personality-wise? Yeah, yeah. I was like, bing, light. I, uh, I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I came out of my mother's womb. I'm sure, saying, "Right, I'll have. Uh, I want a quiet room with two bottles of coke, you know what I mean? <laughs> and then I'll be on stage shortly." <laughs> I mean, we're just made like that. I do think that performers, you know, were were not necessarily people pleasers. But, no, it's not people pleasing. It's just something innate in us that wants to connect. I think you're right. And also, I don't think anybody's afraid of going, yeah, I, do, I actually do want you to like me. I, will, I, I want that verification, <laughs> yes. please. I, that, that's the performer gene. It is. That's in Kate Tempest. It's in me. It's in you. It's in I mean, Denise Goff. It's... Yeah. It is a thing about validation. Um, up until three days ago, I'd very, the last time you saw me, I had oh, very yeah. long hair, yeah, yeah, massive yeah, beard, good hair, and I'd had it for, for two jobs back to back, and it spanned like 12 months, yeah. and I was turning to that Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> Christmas is coming, you could have got loads of work. Exactly, it was getting, it was getting that out of hand, <laughs> but people were even saying that to me, put a bit more grey in that, you're laughing. And so I went on Friday, I went on Friday to London, and I got my hair cut by somebody I didn't know, because my hairdresser had moved to New York yeah. three months ago, the only yeah. person I trusted, right? So it's like going yeah. to the dentist when you're about seven, yeah. terrified, yeah. you're nervous. Yeah. <laughs> so he starts cutting my hair, I'm going to no going back, and yeah. all his hair's dropping on yeah. the floor and the beard's come up, and anyway, come out, and I think, right, no, well, it's a new way, I haven't really seen my face for 12 months, yeah. but it's fine. And I went to go and pick my son up, who's eight, I walked into the after school care room and it's full of, full of the, the, his classroom kids and they all turned and they went, oh God, his dad like nice hair, I like it. And I went, oh, well, kids tell the truth. Yes, so I've got validation there that I feel all right about my new haircut by that's a bunch the, of eight-year-olds. That's the performer. I mean, that is that gene. That's the, the worry. That's, that's that gene, the gene that goes... Right, I can. I'm all right now. Yeah. Somebody, somebody's, uh, you know, because a bunch of eight-year-olds <laughs> just told me that. That's great. I can believe it. Whereas if an adult told me, I'd go, "Oh, is it?" Oh, that. Well, that is true as well. Yeah. The, 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 the truth. The flip side. The great thing about kids is that kids will um, tell you the direct truth. And I think as a performer, as well, you know that you get to know that you get to know who filters. You know the the filters. We have to use filters to survive. I mean, I guess. I just think performers are a lot less. Filtered, and I, saying that, gosh, saying that, then as we get, uh, as you get recognised, you then get filtered through. You get some strange things happen. People give you things and notes, and you know about yourself that you didn't realise. People you don't know. Sorry, we've gone all dark there. No, no, it's no, a whole no, other, other thing. You have to protect yourself from that. I, I, think I that's do. It's really anyway. interesting because um, a lot of actors, one specific actor is a very good friend of mine. Mm-hmm describes him going to work and being an actor in the industry um, as, as putting on his suit of armour because it protects yeah, you have to. It protects him. And I was thinking, is that something that you do? I have to, yeah. I, because you have to... I believe that I have to. If somebody says, you're wonderful, 
uh, my first reaction is, well, there's a bit of work to do there. <laughs> I mean, we're on the road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Not ready for that from an audience member, you know. And, um, and it's really important to, to have your nearest and dearest, but also yourself, to know that's really kind of you to say that to me. And you don't have to counter it. You don't have to go, oh, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't have to do that. If somebody's willing to say that to you, you internalise yourself. You, this is armour. This is armour. I can't, you know, this is armour. The armour is, if I was to believe everybody who said that to me uh, and to act on that belief, then uh, some strange beast would be would be fed. You'd be feeding, you'd be feeding a strange beast, yeah. wouldn't you? Who would wake up, by the way. It's there to be fed. You know, yeah. our, our egos are, are real things and we use them. Yeah, but you see you it know. all the time in other people. Don't you? Oh, you go, well, yeah. yeah. That's what I'm learning. I'm learning yeah. from that. I don't, what, you mean I don't want to be I there? Don't, oh, I, God, I don't I've want seen that. It. I've seen it and I see it. Because I, it all consumes those other people. I think uh, you... One of the privileges of being a poet is that uh, it's a small market. <laughs> so over the years you see a lot of people, be, but it's in the arts. And if you've done all right you see lots of different people, musicians, actors, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's the same in every industry in the arts. Once you start to do all right, you start to see other people from other fields. And they say, oh, I remember you when I was just playing music in Blar and now I'm on at Wembley. Mm-hmm. So you see a lot of people become famous or become known. And you, and you get taste of it yourself. I can think of a very famous, very famous actor who just went nuts. He was sleeping with everything he could sleep with. He was taking everything he could take. He was lying and cheating to the press, blah, 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 blah. And then, and what's great is, I I can understand that, because that kind of fame is a rush to the blood and to the blah, blah, and you were never liked at school, and now every beautiful woman likes you. Yeah. Um, And he learned. So you've also got to give people the break to make make a mess. But some don't come back. No. Do, 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 do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean because I've seen so many people. I, I was saying to going back to my little boy again, but I was saying to him the other day, he was finding going into year four very hard. And he said, it's, it's all changed. And he said, I don't feel I'm, I'm doing good. I said, it's fine. Fail. Because you fail now and then you learn. And then you, the reason it's harder now is because you're a year older, right? So then everything that they're throwing at you is a year older, but you're going to grow and you're going to rise to that challenge. You'll fail along the way, but you'll get there, and that's why I need to just step up and up, because that'll step up, you'll step up. So I was trying to get through to him. He, 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 he wasn't having it. No, no, he comes to it later. I said, how do you, how do you feel about starting back school? I haven't been on summer holiday and been in Greece for me. He went, I feel like I want to puke. <laughs> 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 that was at the breakfast table. I said, nice, the breakfast table. I said well, look, it, Carry can, on with your coffee. it can only get better from here, can't it? But it's like, you know, we, you know, like you were saying about compliments, it's the same, or filtering the compliments yes. for yourself, for your own good, not to wake the beast. Yeah. On the flip side, can't believe all the bad stuff, otherwise you crumble. Oh, so you've got to find that happy medium. Surely, how do you deal with that? Well, you've got to be for, you, for yourself. I mean, I think the greatest thing you can have is gratitude. So if somebody... Uh, oh, it's so funny you should say this today. Um, my friend Dave Haslam. Lovely Dave. 
another guest of this podcast. Oh, that's so cool. He's, he's, uh, I didn't know he'd done this. That's brilliant. Yeah. Well, he's a really close friend, Dave. He's, you know, he's one of a few really close friends. Uh, and he said something nice on uh, Facebook earlier on. and Actually, it was about friendship. And it was about how Morrissey once said, you know, you hate it when your friends... He hates it when his friends become successful. He said some, and Dave was quoting Morrissey and then saying, well, actually, I'm watching Lem at the moment and I'm loving it. And he's my mate. And it was just a beautiful... Com- and then somebody said something nice. Uh, and Dave just said he just blocked him because um, it was really... Sorry, I don't know why I'm saying that. And what I'm trying to say is that it sticks in the mind. We can be hurt. And yeah, we really have to protect. Sorry, I'm glad you brought it up because that happened just this morning that Dave... Yeah, 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 yeah that Dave... I mean, it was just like she just said something not nice and, and it wasn't that. It was really horrible and there was no explanation of it. It was just blah, blah. And I responded to... I said something like, cheers for that, you know, on, on Facebook. And I didn't know who this person was, you know. And then Dave said... You know, don't don't do that. But it, we are we are out there, and when you're out there, it's funny, isn't it? Because I wonder if the person who's like a listener would actually believe that it can really hurt. I think they can. You know, I do. But think we have that, to protect ourselves. Well, it's all about self-preservation, isn't it? From day to day. It, it, Anyway, it just works its way in, and you've got to try not to let that happen. So the same with the compliment. You can't. You. You. You actually you've got to show. I, th- I think. I think we are responsible. The responsibility is to show gratitude. Do you know what I mean? If somebody's yeah. made the effort to stop me on the street, I, I'm going to talk to them. I'm not going to go blah blah. That's at my level of fame. Mm. Can I tell you my theory of fame? Please do. There's different kinds of fame, right? There's. Uh, I think I've... Haven't I heard your name before somewhere? That's one kind of fame. Yeah. Right? There's second glance. <laughs> That's another... Yeah, do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Right, right? Yeah. The second glance. And there's stop on the street. There is stop on the street. Traffic stopping fame. Yeah. I once walked on King Street. Just walking up King Street. Mm. And uh, David Beckham gets out of the car, starts walking next to me. I didn't know. I was with somebody. Right. I just didn't know. I mean, yeah. it was just a guy walking yeah, down the street. And I, so I'm looking forward, and he's walking parallel to me. Right. And I'm seeing a policewoman go in slow motion. No. Yeah, and I'm like... And, and the, the, I mean, I've never... I've, and, you know, I've met a lot of people, famous people, etc. The world slowed down. Mm. Yeah, it's just a different level. Like yeah, that. now that kind of that stop on the stop on the street film. and the other one, if you're black, is is um, the police stopping you and you can't. And what happens is, I've worked this out. I've got a theory about this because Go it does happen to a lot of uh, black celebs or black uh, Olympic runners or what have you. They've got a fancy car, get stopped. It's because they recognise you, right? And they're thinking, I bloody know that face. Now, if a policeman knows your face, the next thought is, well, it's work. Yeah, of course. It's work. Yeah. And it's a well-known sort of thing amongst the black community of being stopped by the police, but actually being known and stopped by the police. So there's that level of fame as well, which is one you get used to. Uh, you, do you ever see have you ever seen comedians in cars with getting coffee? Oh, Jerry oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I loved it. Have you seen That's the a great idea. It's a brilliant idea, isn't it? What is that? Comedians in cows. That shouldn't work. 
But it's like a little talk show on the yeah, road. Yeah, yeah. Did you see the Chris Rock episode? No. Now, I'm not going to do it... Um, uh, justice. I'm not going to do it justice by quoting it, but go back and have a look. Because what right. we've just been talking about, something happens at the end, and Chris Rock has a, has a, a little theory about that. It's very, very interesting. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Go oh, that's, your, that's your Sunday afternoon. I wonder whether, he, I wonder whether Chris Rock goes, look, it's not that they stop us, it's that they look at us and then we look back at them. I'm like, what are you looking at me for? <laughs> Pulls no punches. Right, yeah, yeah, no, he never did. He no. always, you know, he was always honest, and uh, it's good to have people out there just, uh, you know, saying it as, it as it really is. I mean, and his last stand-up was very honest about. Oh, it was about relationships. It was about relationships, yeah, yeah. and yeah, he really hung his washing out there. Definitely. Yeah, well, that's part of this thing as well. Is that um, you know the darkness and the light? If you're going to be confessional which I guess I am to a certain degree. Oh, confessional's probably not the right word. Honest, if you're going to be... Un- no, you, you see, an actor can be just as honest. Playing a character as a person can just be as honest as talking about their... about all of themselves. I believe, anyway. Mm. I believe that uh, the actor has to sort of go there. Like, the artist has to go there, ultimately. Ted Hughes went there with yeah. b- birthday letters. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like at, that, at his time, 60s, 70s, 80s, like to be autobiographical, to be talking to you about yourself was seen as like non, was unacademic or un, ungainly. Yeah. You're selling yourself through your story. Would you not think you go that with your work? I do, yeah. I mean, I really No, do. I really yeah, do. all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it's all, it's, I always wonder why people think that the magic's in us and round us, you know. And uh, it won't allow us to pretend to be something. Yeah, somebody said something to me not long ago, and I might have said it before. I've been doing so much talking, like, not as much I know, as you. I know, I know. You know I, what I mean? You know, sometimes when you do so much talking, you go, have I said this before? And, uh, have I you seen uh, Inception? Yes. That film? Is right, that if you imagine <laughs> that that's all filing cabinets of information that you've been talking about. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not bad, that, that, is it? Brilliant. <laughs> That's exactly it, isn't it? But someone was saying that the artistic part and the artistic side oh, like is, 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 is in all of us. Yes, it is. But it's about whether it's untapped. It's there. Yeah. But if you're going to rip it open. That's why, in many ways, we're, I think we're privileged because it is in everybody. Creativity and mm. is, is in everybody. Um, and we're lucky as artists because we get to uh, we get to realise that, make a career out of it, be paid for it. Um, but saying that, that's actually got its downside as well because maybe it's good to open your creative part when you want to go listen to music, when you want to get a decent haircut, when mm. you want to. No, seriously, no, you know, no. like a woman goes to her hairdressers, it's a thing. Yeah, it's a culturally significant moment of the, our times. It's pure theatre. It's drama. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. all of the things that we, yeah. you know. So I, I, I think, and and then the look in the mirror, and then she walks out, just like the woman who actually, when we came in, I said about her hair. Yeah, it's it lifts the mood, but it's not a, it's a, it's it's a cut with scissors, man. It's not, you know, it is a performance. It's a set. It's a blur. Um, and we are lucky to to be able to know, nurture, and appreciate fully 
the kind of glory, it's a funny word, isn't it? It reminds me of a Baptist foster parents, but the glory of that, you know. Yeah. I mean, I... <laughs> Which I want to get back to. I don't want to get back to the Greenwoods. Yeah, okay. So, it's just you. It's just, just me. you three at, at this moment. Isn't yeah, it? My, no other, no other children. No, there's, yeah, they've prayed to God, and God has said to the Greenwoods, uh, you know, foster, take the child. You know, take the child. And uh, they've taken me, and they've. I mean, they were my mum and dad. They taught me to say mum and dad back to them. You know, they said they were mine forever. They. Uh, they said that my mum didn't want me. This is a great narrative, by the way. You know, the narrative is is that your mother wasn't good enough and your mother didn't want you. And actually, that's I don't believe that's a lot of the truth. If we think about this in terms of acting and char- mm. character, mm. a woman is pregnant for nine months with her first child on the bridge between childhood and adulthood, and she just doesn't want her child. No. Exactly, but but the twi- exactly exactly it doesn't add up. Exactly. Really. Doesn't add up. So For us as adults, well, yeah, as adults. So now we're talking about 1968. There was something like 28,000 children that were adopted from women who were said to not want their child through these mother and baby homes. There's a Guardian article that outlines that. That's when it was at its peak mm. in, in 1968. So that's what I'm told about my mother, and I'm, I think my name's Norman. The foster parents want to call me Mark after Mark in the Bible. So my name is Norman Mark Greenwood, and I'm with the foster parents forever, in my, what I was told by them, yeah. and my mother was just too selfish to sign the adoption papers and disappear, That's, that was the narrative. By the time I was 12, I started taking biscuits from the tin without saying please and thank you, started to go out and come in late and lie about where I've been. And I let's just say that. that is quite normal behaviour for... Yeah. Uh, 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 I mean, for any, my, look, my little boy's eight. He'll, he'll pop into the kitchen and I say, could you please ask for doing that? <laughs> Every time I'm telling... You know... Is it, and it must be a bit nuts, though, because he used to ask. And now he's like... Now he's, you know, he's growing and he's trying things and actually you need to retrain. Okay, regroup, retrain. Yeah, well, my foster parents didn't retrain. They were very religious and they, I'm not against religion, but they then thought, what the hell is happening with this boy, you know? And the more they punished me, the more times I would take biscuits and it just, so they saw me taking biscuits only in relation to them. Yeah, of course. So me, biscuits become now a metaphor, you know, so me taking biscuits was not appreciating what they were doing for me. Me lying about it was me undermining everything they'd taught me, etc., etc. I was the oldest child. Um, they'd then had, by then they'd had three other children by the time I was 11. And they, uh, they then put me into children's homes and um, said they'd never speak to me again. And never did while I was in care. They they never visited me and they they never called. And, um, and this was when this was when you were twelve. I was twelve, just turned twelve, yeah. And it was just after Christmas as well. It was like the day after New Year's Day, and I never heard from them again when I was in care. And that was it. That was it. I lost everybody. I lost my granddad, my grandma, my my uncles and aunties, and my sisters and brothers, and my first girlfriend. My first girlfriend spent the next two years trying to find me and ask my foster parents where I was and they wouldn't tell her. Yeah. So she got. She told me this yesterday. I didn't know this. I knew that she'd found me. I didn't know she'd done it this way. She got somebody from the church, like a 
kid who was her own age to listen to the adults talking about me. And then he came back to her with a piece of paper with the word Woodfields written on it. Because that was the first one where you were. The first children's home. Yeah. And then she found me, Diane. No. Yeah, little Diane. It took a 13 year old girl, not one adult from the town that I was brought up in. This 13 year old girl found me. We're we're friends to this day. It's so interesting that you you pick that specific moment, what we were talking about. Because there was, I've just got Lem's book here. Um, I'm just flicking through it because I've got a folded over page yeah. here. And is that the right one? Oh, it's a lovely battered looking book. That's the correct, uncorrected proof. It it's is. actually much more difficult to read. Have you got a hardback? Have you got no, one? No, not yet. Alright, I'll give you one. I've got a Because um, there was many things that stuck yeah. out. Do you mind if I just no, read a little bit? Is that alright? I'd be honoured, Drake. But, um, I prefer you to hear you sick of reading it myself. There's this moment, and it absolutely stopped me in my tracks that I had to stop reading for a bit. And it just carries on from what we were talking about. It says, this was the beginning of the end of open arms and warm hugs. This was the beginning of empty Christmas time and hollow birthdays. This was the beginning of not being touched. I'm 12, and it is my fault. This is what I have chosen. The journey took 45 minutes, or 45 seconds, or 45 years. Mm, I've got to say, uh, that's exactly it. But also that, it's, it's quite incredible listening to you read it. It's great to hear somebody read something that uh, I wrote. Those last three sentences... Tell me everything about how you were feeling in that car as you drove along the road yeah. through Wigan. But I was bewildered because I I was bewildered. I was like, "Of course, what the hell is going on? What uh, <clears throat> what's happened? You know, what did I do?" And yeah, and then it would take a lifetime to kind of work it out. Did, did you did you think that there were? They were going to come back for you at that point. Yeah, I did, yeah. How could I not? I, it was everything that I'd ever known. Um, how could I not? Like, the question, that's the question. It's like, how could I not think that they were coming back for me, that they wouldn't do that? Um, <laughs> and I also, when I was in care, uh, was going to remember it. I was going to remember it. I don't know what it is in, in me, but I, I was going to remember this. I, this mattered. Nobody around me was saying it mattered. Social worker wasn't saying that. No. He said it's not your fault, but he wasn't like, take, he wasn't mending it. Um, but it was already drilled into you that it was your fault. They'd done a really clever thing. They told me that, but not told the social worker that. Because you can't. A child can't go, right, I just want to leave this place. <laughs> it's natural for children to say, I want to leave this place. It's not natural to then say, right, okay, we agree, let's, let's see you go. You know? yeah. This is why it bugs me when people say, oh, we need to consult young people in care about how to look after them. Because how will a young person in care know how to look after themselves? They've come into care, into children's homes or foster care, so that somebody else can care for them. Because they need that care. Yeah. They need looking after that. So... So then I was just in a series of children's homes, uh, four children's homes, over the next six years, 
I stayed in those children's homes for an average of a year and a couple of months, a year and three months. Staff changed every four hours. Children came in and out. Uh, I didn't know anybody, and yet I was in the middle of it all. When did you notice a change within yourself as this bright, happy boy? Because there was a change. Well, I thought that everybody was like me, and funnily enough, when when you're bright in yourself, which I think everybody is actually, everybody has that, you see it in other people. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? You yeah. see it in other people, yeah, absolutely. you know, and you want to bring it out of other people. So, okay, there's another bright one there. Ding! You can see that bright one, but that one there, the light is not shining as much, but they're just, they just need bringing it out. So, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and you, you, people often, you know, an extrovert is just an introvert trying to prove that they're not. <laughs> that is so true. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And then, therefore, the extrovert can have empathy for the introvert. The extrovert's job, in my opinion, isn't about going, I'm brighter than all of you. It's not that at all. It's about seeing light in other people, you know. I think of actors particularly like that, or my kind of actors particularly like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, but sometimes if you see them, regardless of, of what they are, uh, or what they do, whether they're an artist or a poet or an actor or yeah. a stand-up or a musician, yeah. if they're a human being, yeah. um, that quite brash, loud, boisterous, full-on personality yeah, yeah, yeah. that can be quite overwhelming, yeah. it's just makes of the insecurity of the oh, person absolutely. so much. And I, I, you know, we know that now and we can just... I'm not going to let that person bother me too much because... It says so much about them, so and sometimes we just want to go, come on, just come here, let's just have a hug, and you don't need to do this. Just, this isn't a stage. This, we're just here talking. Just step off the stage, and we can just have some normality. It's all right. And, and a lot of the time, I'm just, just riffing on that. You know, you think to yourself, well, I think to myself, wow, if you're not doing this big, big show for everybody, Will's going to fall apart for you, isn't it? So you have to, do you know what I mean? Yeah. There, there are people who do that imposing thing. Um, and, and, I, and I think, um, okay, I've got to go with this. <laughs> with your yeah. bigness, yeah. you know. And, Which must be exhausting. Oh my gosh, to be on your own and to be like that, you know. Um, uh, where are we? Sorry. I, I, but, well, I'm, but I'm, I'm, I was I'm, an extrovert as a kid. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I loved people to, uh, you know, I... It is true, though. It's that I genuinely thought that everybody was smiling in the world. And there came a point in care, looking back at when I was with the foster parents. This is a really sad thing that I realised, or thought I I realised, that it wasn't that everybody was smiling, it was that I was smiling at the world. And it was smiling back at me. But I thought everybody smiled. Mm. I genuinely thought everybody was like, I was like, I was the kid in the advert who walks outside and everything's black and white and with every step, just colouring. To to junior school. Yeah. And my foster parents took away all memory of me. Um, It's funny, there's a documentary being made at the moment on me uh, for Imagine. Oh, really? 
well, I should be talking about this, but we, we no, that's the great thing. Okay, that's great. All right, because we can we'll talk just, about anything. We can then, quite, and we then, quite yeah, anything. Yeah. He's two days ago going back to Ashton in Makerfield. Did you? Going back to the house that I was brought up in with my foster parents. And how was that? Well, I've not gone back. This is the producer's oh, gone right. back. Oh. The producer's gone back, but I will be going back. And, and the next door neighbours, my foster parents have gone now from that town. And the next door neighbours said he was a lovely kid. They said, and he just disappeared. He just disappeared. And everybody you meet along the street and at the school, he just disappeared. What did the parents say about it? They didn't say. He just went. They wouldn't talk about it. They wouldn't talk about it. And then the stories about what kind of family we were are starting to slowly... Um, I, I, it, as I become known, people are starting to look closer at the family and I don't know if they deserve to... to have people looking at them in their lives. They did the wrong thing. They did something bad to a child which lasted a lifetime. Yeah. The effects of what they had were just immeasurable for me. Well, that was that. Yeah. But this... I, I can't take responsibility. They have to... They did what they did and they left an impression with lots of people and, and those people will speak to cameras. Um, do you understand what I'm saying here? I'm saying that I know that somebody has done wrong. Uh, I mean, basically, when they put me into care, they must have gone back to the whole family, my aunts and uncles and cousins and granddad and grandma, and said, don't talk to him. He's left us. He doesn't want to be us. He's rejected God. Mm. He's rejected us. That, that, that is the only thing they could have told them. And said, because nobody contacted me ever again. No. I still find it, you know, obviously I spent my adult life not thinking about it, essentially, and finding my birth family and everything, and that's a story in itself, but, uh, it's, it's it, you know, secrets are sometimes a thing that hold a family together. Isn't that strange? You know, not, yeah. not, not saying things is not necessarily a bad thing. No, you but know? Li lies are a completely different yeah. kettle of fish. That's true, is, that's actually true, yeah. Which is, what, about that. Which is yeah. what this is. Yeah. And I don't want to paraphrase, but you'll know what I mean because we're on, we're in that, that we're in that arena. In that arena now. <laughs> <laughs> Gladiators. <laughs> um, they told there was something about love. You'll be able to pick oh, this up. Tell you, exactly. you know what you know what I'm saying. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but yeah I can tell you. We had a family meeting. I wrote this about about this in a play called Something Dark. Mm. Which is now, yeah, it's published by Oberon, etc. Is it? It is, it blooming is. <laughs> and um, it's also on the national curriculum as a choice text. That well, that's it. Can you believe it? That's, oh my that's gosh. it. So, so they sat me at a table, my, my foster mum and foster dad, they had a family meeting, and it was just me. And I was like, oh, great. You know what I mean? Family meetings were things, weren't they? You yeah. know, and I was like, "Oh, this is just me at the family meeting, just me and my mum and dad." Either I'm in port or I'm in a right lot of trouble. <laughs> well, I know that I had no concept that I was in trouble. I thought, 
I had no concept that I thought I was in trouble. I just thought this is, you know, one on my brother. <laughs> I'm going to find something out that he's not knowing about because I'm the oldest. And my, and my foster mum said, um, she said, you don't love us, do you? Such a great question. You don't love us, do you? You don't love us, do you? So it's a question and a statement in one. And I said, yes, I do. Yeah, of course I do. Because love was really central. It's central to the Baptist church, central mm. to the faith, and central to my mum and dad. So if there's one easy question to answer, it's that. Not only is it an easy question to answer, but you're always going to get it right if you say yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. bring this family meeting on. Yeah. <laughs> Under control. And uh, my, my, my foster mum said, she said... Um, I want you to think about love and what it is and to read the Bible uh, and to speak to God and stuff. And remember, I'm reading the Bible every day. I'm praying every day. I don't think I'm reading the Bible every day. Let me be honest about that. Maybe every couple of days. I am praying every day. That's what we had to do. Um, And so I'm like, okay, uh, right, I will do that. And then I thought about it. I thought, if they're asking me whether I love them or not, then... And they're the ones who taught me what love is. Yeah. And remember, in the Baptist faith, you, the idea is that you ask God for forgiveness. Okay? The, the whole faith is based on asking for forgiveness for your sins, mm. and then you become a Baptist, etc. Identify your sins and ask forgiveness. It's a bit like an open-house confession, I guess, for Catholic. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's the same sense of you are guilty as, as sin, mm. and therefore ask forgiveness of your sins such a big deal and I'm 12 and this is all I've ever known right the Baptist Church Brim Baptist Church uh, I liken it to a sort of brick Doberman <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah, a brick Doberman the two haunches with the, with the arch there yeah. and um, and uh, and so I came back the next day with a the perfect theological answer and it was that that I, I said, I mustn't love you, I must not love you, I don't love you. But I don't love you, I mustn't love you, because what I thought to myself is, if you're asking me if I love you, and you're the ones who told me what love is, then I mustn't love you, God is love, and I'll learn to love you by asking God for forgiveness. Mm. Therefore I'll get God's love, and I'll be able to love you. Perfect. I mean, it was proper theological magic. Really was. And I came back the next day and I said this to my foster mum and she said, because you don't love us, she was then shocked that I didn't love her. A faux shock. But it was shock, I thought. She's, I didn't love her and then she said, well, because you don't love us, it's, you don't want to be with us. Of course you don't. And... Uh, and then the next day, my social worker was there to take me away from them, and my foster mother would not hug me at the doorstep because I had chosen to leave her. That's the narrative. They could then go back to their whole family and say, Lem, has, Norman has chosen to leave us. He doesn't want to be with us. Don't be in touch with him. It was his choice. Of course, she could never say that to the social worker. She couldn't say, take this child because he doesn't want to be with us. Because most children don't want to be with their parents. And they, at some point, they want to run away and tell you the worst thing about yourself oh, that hurts you, you know. Oh. But it was a setup. It was all a setup. Of course, yeah. It was all a setup. But I didn't know at the time. I thought I was a naughty boy. And, 
But you were and drilled in it. it. It was drilled into you that you were a naughty boy. Yeah, there was yeah, something. Yeah. There was some sort of badness. There. That's why I said to my social worker, "I know this is my fault." You know, I'll ask God for forgiveness, and that's why he said, "None of this is your fault." And I, by the way, he was on the Today program the other day on Radio Four, and he said this. This is Norman Mills. Norman Mills. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Coincidentally, the last person who was my social worker was called Norman. He was a good Norman, <laughs> and the first person who stole me effectively from my mother, he was called Norman. He's the man who named me after himself. Yeah. So all of this complication leads to the general feeling that there must be something wrong with me. Um, and, uh, and that's what I, where I entered my teens in the children's homes. And the first thing I wanted when I went into care was a hug, and it was the last thing I got, and I was not touched. I wasn't touched by an adult until I, well, until I, until relationships, but, but by an adult that cared for me. The, I wasn't touched in the children's homes. Was, I was from a touching family. Baptist faith is full of, you know, mm. hugs and sort of uh, everything from cast the devil out of you, you know, with the yeah. hand, put, the putting your hands on, you know, the faith was a, a place in hands, uh, you know, it was... The Baptist faith, the, you know, at the church, at the church in front of the pulpit of Bryn Baptist Church, the floor would open to a pool. Really? The preacher would walk around the side of the, of the, of, this is in Lancashire, the side of the pulpit, women and men would come dressed in white gowns from the left-hand side of the pulpit, the door that goes to the back of the church, in white gowns, and they would, gosh, it, this is surreal. And they would walk down the steps in front of the pulpit into the water. The preacher would walk into the water from the other side, like an oblong section of water beneath, in front of the pulpit. And they would stand there and he would pray to them and they would fall backwards into the preacher's hand and he would draw them into the water and then pull them out and say, you are saved, you are saved. Somebody would, would stand up in the, in the Baptist church and start to speak in tongues as if they're possessed by God himself and that was seen as a spiritual thing and, and that's the person being saved, you know. So we're talking about touch here, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's what I was brought up in. Where are you with religion now, as an adult? Oh, no, sorry. That's a good as, as, as who you are. That's who I am, yeah. I, I, I believe in people who believe. He said winking. I mean, <laughs> I, I, no, no, but I do believe in people who believe, so I think, it's, I think it's good to have a belief, and I think it's good to... If your belief is in God, then that's a good thing. If your belief is in a tree, that's a good thing. If your belief is in the power of creativity to heal and to um, unheal even at times, um, then that's a good thing. But it's important to believe, I think. And if your belief is in the communist faith or if it's in the conservative faith, then good. But believe it fully, you know. Commit. Um, I, think, I think that there is something bigger than me. 
All right? Yeah. Bigger than my story. Bigger than my view of the world. You know? This is not about me. There's something bigger. Right. right? I'm not saying there's a plan. I'm not saying there is somebody uh, determining the way things are. But there's something bigger than me. Human beings are incredible. And we have spirit. And uh, whatever it is. And I don't care. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. But that's why, I mean... Another one reason why I love doing this because I'm endlessly fascinated yeah. by human beings. You can see it and with feel what, it with yeah. whatever they do. I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> I want to <laughs> I want to know it all. Please. It's like we are all food at your table. I'm mm. like, oh, I'll have a bit of that, mm. and I'll, I'll have a quarter of that. <laughs> oh, and that tastes. Let's have some more of that. <laughs> I love that you said a quarter of that. <laughs> You remember the quarter? <laughs> yeah. That was Saturday after football. Uh, a quarter of bonbons. Just, I, I don't have two answers to that. The next one. Perfect. So then, when? I, but by the way, can no. I just say I wasn't allowed to be nostalgic. They stole my memory. They stole the corner shop from me, the town, the village, the the everything. Everything that you can look back on and go, oh, God, do you remember then? They stole that from me. I had nobody to go back to to say, oh, do you remember when there were bonbons in the in the shop and there were all of those different um, big jars? I, I, they stole the most fundamental parts of memory from me. That's what all this is about. It's about me saying, no, you can't say that I'm not from Lancashire. It is where I'm from. I fought for my way back so that I could own the memory of me, you know. Um, yeah. Do you get I, me, though? Do you get me? Those I places, do, you know. I do, and it's a long fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember, I'm jumping, when I finished the book for the first time, I was very, I felt very upset. For this amount of time, I'm just showing yeah. Lem a very small... So very, li- very little empathy. Very there. little empathy. <laughs> but... As soon as that happened, right, and I felt myself getting upset, it switched, Mm. and I was angry. Mm. I was very, very angry. I was upset, but the anger was beating how upset I was. Do you understand? Really beautiful, yeah. Because that means the book, what happens with the book is what happened with me. You know, I was very angry, man. I know, that's what I want to talk about. How do you process, or begin to even process... The anger that you must slash must have felt at that time, especially when you're dealing with adolescence. Oh, that time. You, you're growing up, you don't even know who you are yet. Oh, thank you. What the... So I, I, uh, I, I mean, I did have a breakdown. I had a full-on breakdown at 16. Like, I, like my, brain just, my brain just went, okay, all right, everybody out. This is not... We, we're not doing this yeah. anymore. Lem... You can you can't work this out because we're not built for this. So see ya. Mm. And then I couldn't get out of the house of the children's home. I could not walk outside. I couldn't be around people. I uh, and and then that's when they locked me away in an assessment centre. You know, Damn. that's when they imprisoned me. Yeah. So so my job was about survival. When I came out of care and I came to Manchester, um, I. Uh, I, I I I was angry, you know. I was angry, and I I, I uh, but I, I was I was angry, but I wasn't. I wasn't. My anger would never. 
my anger, I didn't want to hurt anybody. I mm. think I actually had a, f- I, I think now, looking back, I had a fear of hurting people because my th- emotional theory was that if you hurt somebody, they go away. Everybody goes away. That's what the parent, foster parents gave me. You do the wrong thing and you will, you, and you will have no control over it. Mm. So I think, I, think I've, I think that's something I've struggled with all my life, actually, in, in various ways. But, but um, And I do believe, as I've said, I do believe that anger was an expression in the search for love, because for me it was. Um, um, but it had to get filtered at some point. It had to get, you had to filter something out. And if well, it came out as anger... Well, that's what I'm going to talk that's about. Well, creativity, yeah. writing poetry. Did I say that when I left care, I was given my birth certificate? And my birth certificate had my name on it, Lemsis A. And I was given letters of my mother pleading for me back to the social worker that she'd given me to, whose name was Norman. Nobody told me that I was named after him. I had to work this out from that letter. His name was Norman. Oh, and also, no, that's not true. My foster parents told me. They said he wanted to call you Norman, but we want to call you Mark. Norman Mark Greenwood. But um, I worked out, when I got that letter... That was proof. He was talking to my mother. So, my mother said to my social worker, how can I get Len back? I want him to be with his own people in his own country. Mm. I don't want him to face discrimination. So, there's a letter. I'm, t- I'm 17 years of age. I've got a letter from my mother pleading for me back. I've got my birth certificate that says my name is Lem Hay, not Norman. So, I've got proof that I've been lied to somehow. And... And it, nobody was sort of saying to me, you should be very angry about this, Lem, you've been ripped off, you know, blah, 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 blah. I was still in care. So they're like, how can we contain you, Lem? And I'm like, call me Lem. They're still calling me Norman in the files. Yes. And they're still thinking I'm a bit nutty for changing my name to Lem, remember? Mm-hmm. So the people around me, social workers, the this, that, the other, are like, who we, he's Norman. So I'm in a mad institution where people don't even know my story. Yeah. And I've been in that institution for 18 years. How can you be cared for by the government for 18 years and be 18, 17, and nobody know your story? So I was angry, I didn't care. Um, I was angry, but I tried my best. I kept trying my best to be my best. And, um, and it was poetry, always. I wrote poetry because I wrote what the truth was. And that allowed me to be able to say, I'm not crazy, this really is happening to me. And then I left care, came to Manchester, and, um, I mean, met people, and met black people I'd never met before, and Irish people, and Jewish people, like... And, like, the world's just opened up, you know, Mm. and I was like, wait a minute, that... Let's call them, let's talk black and white. I, they're not the, my favourite terms anymore. But that white guy has known black people longer than I have. <laughs> <laughs> it's a guy I mean, called Steve Smith in Manchester. He works with the council now. Uh, I was like, you grew up in Mossside and you knew everybody. Same with Terry Christian, you yeah. know. You know, they grew, they grew up around the Caribbean community. And so I was going into the Caribbean community of Manchester going... What am I? 
Still, what? Yeah, but you're learning. You're oh, I was, oh my God, are you kidding me? Yeah. No, I was asking that question. I was like, what am I? What do you do? What do we do? How do we speak? What do we eat? Mm-hmm. Without realising I wasn't Caribbean at all, of course. I was from Africa, yeah. which is a very different place with a very different set of values, you know, not values, very different set of cultural uh, 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 points of reference. Well, that really interesting thing in, in the book about the hair? You know, with the comb. Oh my god! <laughs> it's yeah, just like, I was going, what? yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah I mean that's it, that's un- scary. I mean, horrible. scarily. I think there was a certain amount of hatred involved. I mean, I go into my mother's story. My foster. We're going back now, but I, I go into my foster mother's story, and you know, this is a family whose parents were probably at the end of the First World War and um, the Second World War. That's um, a lot of messed upness. So, just to say this, my foster mum used to comb my hair with a, a thin tooth comb, yeah. and it, it 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 just made my head feel like I'd been dipped in acid. She used to tear it through my through my hair. Um, I mean, in in your words, you can. I felt how painful that must have been, and then it up up until. One person. Who was it that said about the Afro comb? Is it Errol Brown? It was Errol, Errol Brown. Of course it was. How can I forget that? <laughs> oh my God, that's like me forgetting the. Oh, <laughs> the Lenny Henry. It's all good. though, you've got loads. Oh to God, of course. But, of course. You know, there, I do believe. See, this is creativity. Errol Brown was the lead singer of Hot Chocolate. He's a singer. He's a lyricist, etc. He was related somehow to a woman who was giving birth to a baby who was born in Winstanley, but, but who was at Billinge Hospital. My foster mother was a nurse. She must have met him and told him about my hair, and he must have said to her, this kid needs an Afro comb. <laughs> so what I was taken... So I was taken to see him, in uh, this woman who'd had the baby, because my foster mum was a midwife. Mm. And... Um, and he presented me with an Afro comb. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, I mean, th- this is the power of creativity. That's an artist. That's a, 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 an artist who's solving a fundamental problem with the family through an artifact, uh, an Afro comb. Mm. You know, we are... We're, I was doing a talk the other day, uh, two days ago, the Imperial... Yesterday morning at the Imperial War Museum in London, 10 o'clock in the morning. And the conversation was about how central culture is and how if you take away culture, you take away the heart of the people. And in fact, once you start to take away culture, that's the beginning of genocide. Sounds dark, but actually uh, we were talking about culture being taken uh, in Syria, in Iraq, and there were experts and archaeologists a woman who was once in the Foreign Office said the attacks against the West from Iraq are in cultural places. We're in Manchester now. It was the Ariana Grande concert. Mm. And there's a reason that they're in cultural places because it it actually takes away the heart of the people. There you have my mother tearing my hair through with a comb that wasn't made for my hair. There you have an artist, a creative, bringing this beautiful uh, object, cultural object, crossing the lines to this other midwife 
to give her a comb to comb my hair. In other words, without knowing something of this child's culture, you were they were inhumane to me. Yeah. And it take it took, takes an artist to say actually, if you just know this is this is the comb, something as simple as a comb. But without that simple comb, I was having my hair torn out of my head every day. But I remember reading it thinking, nobody. <laughs> Nobody, nobody in the right mind would think that this is right, or they're not doing harm or damage to to a child. I, I, I no, just... I was told it was hair sore, so I actually thought hair sore was a condition until I was in my nineteen twenty. Mm. I mean, who say that that wasn't hair sore? That was hair sore. That's what you get is hair sore. My mum's a nurse. It made sense. Another thing that I really upset me because I just think I just don't understand. I. I I don't have afro hair, do I? But if I did, then I would understand. I would understand if I was doing that to my um, foster child, who say was from Ethiopia, yeah. and, and I was pulling it, yeah. and they were pulling the head back oh. physically. I would go, no, I'm hurting another human being. Yeah. That's not right. So I just didn't buy that. The worst thing was is that I shouldn't cry, you know, as well. <laughs> so it was like... Yeah, that's you know, more And it was also, this is hurting me more than it's hurting you, because oh. I don't like hurting you. So we're now talking about a very strange psychology. Yeah. Oh, it's layered. So the psychology, you know... And to be honest, most of our parents have got a funny psychology that they enact on us, even if they don't realise it. Okay, and we... But the thing is, you have a lifetime to work it out. What they did that was cruel is that they just cut off and just said they just cut off and threw me into the ocean like yeah. I was rubbish now otherwise I would have a dysfunctional family just like everybody's got a dysfunctional family you know? and I would have a lifetime to work it out and they would have a lifetime to apologise they may never do but you know what I mean that's what parents and children and child yeah. is it's not perfect the imperfection is part of what makes a family a family but they didn't do that no and that that you know that was a fundamental mistake of theirs. No, they spat you out. Yeah, they did. That's exactly yeah. what they did. They did. They spat me out as I was as if I was rubbish. They put me into children's homes and they were they were they were sort of saying you are now going to prove yourself to be the worthless thing that you are. That and we that we know, that we you, know are. That you are. In other words, the last thing that I should be is a success in any way. Um, but if you're told and you're drilled that something's bad, that you're bad, if you're told and told and told and told that again, you're going to start to believe it. So no wonder everything swirling around in your head, finding that you're not normal, no wonder it affected your mental health. And you shouldn't have been having a breakdown at 16 years old. Um, <laughs> and the thing is, is that when I had that breakdown, they... Nobody acknowledged that it has had anything to do with what I'd been through, you know. It was, um, except for the psychologists and the psychotherapists and yeah. stuff. They were like, well, this makes sense. <laughs> you know, they mm. were like, well, yeah. Um, I, it was Wigan, it was 1984, and it was Orwellian, you know, and so... It, which you refer to yeah. a fair few times in the book, yeah. and I go... Yes, yeah. you are 100% yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I, t I was taught, isn't it strange, I was taught... I was taught uh, Animal Farm in English at school, actually, which is all about the institutionalisation of, uh, of people being the people that run the system, mm. the animals. Mm. 
but it crops up again and again yeah, in the book, and yeah. you're so right. There's an, another. There was two words that talking about the care homes. There was two words that, that kept cropping up for me, and already I didn't like the words. And I remember turning a page, I turn a page, and there in front of me, it just said wood and and already it filled me with dread, and I, it was palpable because I felt that I knew what was coming. Right. Yeah. And I don't want to go into too yeah. much detail because I really, really, really want people to read this book yeah. and go out and yeah. get it. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah. And the, the great, another thing, not to make this about me because I really don't, I try hard. Oh, it is it. great. I don't, but no. I love it. I actually love it no. because you're connected to what, what it, it is. is that you're talking about and I'm, I, that means something to me. But about this podcast is I, if people want to come on, and PR companies and people will, will ring, oh, can we come on because we've got to sell a show? I've got, no, that's not what it's about. I, I, oh, yeah, I, you don't do this, do no, you? No, I don't do this. Oh, I don't of do this. course you but, don't. But here's the thing. Which is fine. I talk about the, the yeah, human yeah. condition and the, the human in front of me, right? Yeah. But this book is all about that. Yeah, it's it all about what yeah. I, I love to do. That's why I want people yeah. to read it. Yeah. And also, yeah. because it's really important. Yeah. And what went on in all of, in all of those homes, but certainly in Woodend... <laughs> Again, upset me and made me so angry. And then at the end of the book, and I was thinking, well, what what do we do now? What can we do? What is going on now with the county councils? Oh well, that's where a do good we question. start? Or is I mean, I know things are already starting, but they are. There's, there are reviews happening all over the country, and there are children's services reassessing what and who they are themselves. Um, there's lots of problems, man. That's, there's lots of problems. Are you there. digging deep on the problems? Uh, yeah, I am to a degree. I'm also trying to get on with my life rather than join into their sort of institutional reviews. I think it's really important that I stay independent as an artist and I'm not co-opted into the structures of self-reflection which fit perfectly with the institution's way of thinking. In other words, you know, when an institution yeah. reviews itself, it also does that review within its own structure, mm. and therefore it's impossible to give a, a full, full-bodied review. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because otherwise you become a professional, a professional sort of critique, and I'm not that. I'm an artist and creative. That's what I said when I was in care. You know, I said I was a poet. I knew I was a poet at yeah. 12. From a very young yeah. age, I was yeah. about to say, yeah. <laughs> so I have to maintain that and not be co-opted. And I do find myself co-opted quite a lot, but I, I pull back from it because I think that I can do more from this position than I can through getting involved in their, quote, reviews. And in, in a very small thread, we're going back to what we are talking about at the beginning about self-preservation, because that's yeah. what you're that's doing there. That's it as well, artist? that's exactly it. Yeah. That's it, God, that is it, man. I'm a creative, that's it. I'm an artist and and that's what I've maintained and that's what I have to maintain. Um, I'll let other people do other stuff, but I'll do it from this way and I'm not doing that bad, right? You're doing brilliantly, man. Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect. It has to be. This book... I, I guest edited the Today programme last week. Mm. And 
the Today programme was brilliant because they chose the subject of care to pepper through three hours. You know, all the politicians would be listening to that programme, etc., etc. The book is making people ask questions. You know, I've, I've... Oh, absolutely, yeah, it made me ask so many questions. This is important. That it's so this is the way to do it for an artist, Because right? it's important, yeah, it's exactly important. That's why. If it's not important, then why bother? We have to do it this way. You're doing a podcast for a reason. You're hearing people speak and encouraging us to open to you for a reason in this way. Um, we, we have to... We have to yeah, we have to be the best we can be. Um, I, I won't be compromised by institutions. They're not having me, man. No. They're not having me. I'd rather be vulnerable on stage at the Royal Court than I would be joining their, um, their pretend structures of self-reflection. Which seems like a very good segue into talking about the report... Mm. Now, for those who don't know <laughs> what I'm talking about, what we're going to discuss, and sadly I wasn't there, I know people that were there, um, and they said it was... Anyway, I'm not going to say what it is, but I think we should discuss it first. I, I, well, I was really interested then, because... Um, well, you'll see why, I'll tell you why. And then I'll carry on with what I was going to say. I just didn't want to jump ahead of myself. When I finally received my files, that's 18 years of files which have been written about me while I was in the care system, um, I knew then I was right all along. I shouldn't have been with those foster parents. I shouldn't have had my name changed. I shouldn't have been put into care. Uh, I shouldn't have been imprisoned into Inwood End Assessment Centre. And immediately I took the government to court. I've written plays, I've talked about this in my life, but actually it was all theory, really. Mm. It's all me telling a story. I could be lying. Um, so when I got the file, I finally got the files in 2015. Uh, 2015, and the last entrance in those files is me requesting to see them at 18 years of age. Yeah. My letter. And then I was like, I'm right, I'm taking them to court, I'm going to sue them. And I'm going to sue them for stealing my family, stealing my name, imprisoning me as a child, putting me with terrible foster parents, and then putting me, letting me go at 18 and saying that I would not have a penny to even furnish my apartment. They were my parents for 18 years, the government. Yeah. That took three years, the court case. And it was a big, long one. The barrister, uh, William Chapman, said he's never had a case like this before. Um, my lawyer, whose name was David Greenwood from Switolsky's in Leeds, took me step by step through the process. I had to prove to him, to him, right, to him. Um, and the Wigan Council um, representatives of the government settled out of court in two thousand and seventeen. 2018, I then wrote the book. When I was taking the government to court, I had to go through a psychologist's report. I had to have a psychologist's report written about me, which we would then present as part of our case. Right. A friend from a group called Siblings Together 
which is about getting children in care together with um, with each other once they've been separated. She said to me that the court case in Wales, big old court case, where a class action where 30 people or so were taking the government to court for abuse in children's homes. Uh, 12 people committed suicide within that case. And those 12 people... Uh, had all had their psychologist report done and had to then live with it. So what we're talking about here is people who... Craig, I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm lucky. Mm -hmm. I've been in therapy since I was 30. The people from the housing estates of Wales, they've never been there. So they're then taking a court case to court and they're having a psychologist paint this vile picture of who they are as part of their case. Yeah. So this woman told me about the 12 uh, suicides. Um, uh, 12 suicides. I wrote a blog about it and said, I can't, I, I've, just had, I've just received my psychologist's report. I cannot look at it. I need a stage and I'm going to do it on stage. And I, you can see in the blog, in my blog online, you can see where I'm going right, I'm going to do this on stage, I need to find somebody. Within a week, I found John McGrath. Mm -hmm. John McGrath contacted me, director of the Theatre of Wales. Funnily enough. Bloody hell, yeah. I never thought of that. Mm -hmm. I have never thought of that. Bloody hell. Because mm -hmm. John directed Something Dark. <coughs> Did he? Yes. <coughs> Excuse me, I didn't know that. Wow. So, uh, And when you went to him with this idea... Yeah, no, I think he called me. Did he? I think he called me. From reading the blog? Yeah, yeah. I think he called me. Wow. And, uh... I mean, I get it. I, under I yeah. understand why. Yeah. Uh, and he was the director at the National Theatre of Wales then. And he called me. I spoke to Sarah Sampson, a producer from a company called Time Won't Wait. She called Vicky Featherstone who I've known for years from when she was in Manchester as mm. well. And I've done stuff with her and had meetings with her. And Vicky was like, yeah, Lem, you can have, you can have the theatre for a night in, a, in about ten days. And what was up on stage then? It wasn't Jerusalem. It's the guy who wrote Jerusalem. It was the, the Irish play. The Ferryman. The Ferryman. So it was the roll court the ferryman's on. She said, you can have it when the ferryman's going dark. Right, so this is before it's tran ferryman's transferred to West End. That was May 2017. Right. So they gave us the dark night on the ferryman. Joni, stage manager, who I met a week ago, well, we know each other now, and she, got, she blacked out the ferryman. There was another actor who I just... I had a choice of actors, and mm -hmm. I thought, right, who's going to play the psychologist? And I think it was John McGrath who suggested um, Julie Hesmond-Dolsch. And there was another actor who, I won't say who it is, but who, who had a similar experience to me. And Julie said, it should be that actor. How good is that? Mm. Well, that's Julie just put herself aside and said, "Julie, all over, isn't it?" Yeah, but it, but that is basically another actor coming on to read these files to you. 
and that's the, the first that you've heard of it. What so I wanted... <laughs> Very good. What I wanted to do was to hear my files, my psychologist report, for the first time on stage in front of an audience because I did not want the isolating experience of the psychological effect that it would have on me reading those files alone like those 12 people who did exactly the same thing and committed suicide in Wales. I was frightened. So you wanted a safe space? Yeah. And where is safer than the theatre for you? Absolutely, but it's true. I know, no, I know it's true. Of course you know. Of course I know. Because it's really counterintuitive. Yes. People think it's the people think, oh no, it's not true, Lem. It's not true. You, you're on stage. Falling, but you're going to be there to catch yeah. me, so it's all right. So it was clear as day for me. I was like, of course, the stage. Yeah. And I wrote this blog saying exactly that. You can see my thought processes happen. Julie said, yeah. <coughs> Julie Hesmondorf said she would be the other actor, and in fact, she acted the psychologist. And Julie went into rehearsals with John McGrath, but I couldn't go to rehearsals because I wasn't going to hear. No. I wasn't going to hear the report until I was on stage. So, just to get something here, this is verbatim theatre, but on another level. Yeah. On another level. And I, I don't know how to... I would love to be able to package this. I genuinely would, because there is a need for people who do see their files. Is it for the hospital? Is it for uh, your, your doctor's notes? Is it, which are actually quite emotional when you look back from your first... when you were first born. Is it your father's story? Is army reports? Is it... You know, there is a whole type of theatre, I believe, that is waiting to be explored here. No, and that is of... The records being read for the first time to the person who needs to hear them in a safe place. But I think you'd have to be a very specific type of person. Well, this is it, though. No, no, let me just go with this, Craig. I'm because going. Because you would have to go through the equivalent of a rehearsal process with that person so that they could start to know that this is the best place for them, or it's not. Because the, the second I walked on stage, the second I walked on stage at the Royal Court to a packed audience who bought the tickets within 24 hours to, this, to, the, to see this moment, John whispered in my ear, you don't have to do this, Len. You don't have to do this. Where were you within yourself just before you went on stage? Oh, I knew, I knew I was going to do it. But, but what John was saying was, you can just walk away and we are with you. Yeah. So this is the power of theatre, the power of art, that it can, it can hold itself like a guardian and say, we have just worked at there being 350 people in this audience and I'm telling you now, we can go right now and it's all good. Because I know that it's so... At certain moments, when Julie was reading your files, she would stop, wouldn't she? And she would say, Lem, are you okay? Are you okay to continue? Is that what yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, want to no, no. no, no, that's exactly right. right. Okay. Yeah. Lem, are you okay? Are you okay to continue? Uh, and at first, I was like, yeah, 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 I'm fine. Because it was stage, right? And I could, I could you know, do, the, do, the, do a certain thing that I can do on stage, which is joke. Um, and then just as. As the, basically, as the psychologist unpicked me, 
Mm. All the relationships, all the dysfunctions, uh, things that you don't tell anybody. Uh, and then she would stop and say, again, she'd say, Lem, are you okay? Shall I continue? And I, you know, it just slowly got more and more like, oh, God, yeah, just continue. And I can't remember uh, pretty much anything that she said. Anything, you know? Wow. I've got the report, remember? Yeah. I've never looked at it. Um, right. Never looked at it. I'm never going to look at it. Um, uh, and it was beautiful. You know, and at times people would shout, it's okay, Lem, you know. Well, I know, and I heard that people were shouting, we love you, Lem. Yeah. We're, that's the support in yeah. that space. It was beautiful. It must have been overwhelming at it times. It was profound. It was an incredible... So what is this, you know? It's an incredible piece of theatre. It's an, You know, theatre is... It's, it's, it's the, the... That space... It, it is the... It's, it's life celebrated. It's a life celebrated... Whatever the story, dark or light, mm. it is saying this matters. This matters now. And none of us here in this audience should be anywhere else in the entire planet other than this second here. Lem, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'm really honoured that you came on and that we spoke. I'm honoured that you've spoken to me. Don't, because I'm getting upset. Yes. That's a lot, mate. All right. And another episode is done. And by the end of that, I was done. Me and Lem were both filling up with tears in our eyes and we had to stop. But it was a great place to stop ending there, talking about the the psychiatric report and his files that were read to him by um, the one and only Julie Hesmanholsch. So if you enjoyed that, which I'm hopeful that you did, I really want you to go out and, you know, I don't, people don't come on here and peddle their wares, their TV shows, their, their film, their books, but I do want to urge you to go and get Lem's memoir. It's called My Name Is Why. I do believe it's out on audiobook, read by Lem himself, which I think might be an absolute treat for you. So get out there and dig deeper into the remarkable life of this fantastic fella. Um, Lem, if you're listening, I'm so honoured and grateful that you came on. We had a really good chat, didn't we? It was, uh, it was everything that I wanted it to be. And I try not to have any preconceptions when I meet people. Sometimes you, you can only be disappointed... But I certainly wasn't disappointed one bit, and I really hope you weren't. So thank you so much for downloading and subscribing and sending us all your messages. The, um, the past messages we've had from Jill Halfpenny's episode and Nicola Cochran's episode last week have been overwhelming. Um, Jill's honesty with her stories has touched... Um, so many people and she's so gracious on social media because I know if you've sent her a message and you've tagged her in any money she has responded by saying thank you and that's all it takes as with Nicola um, what else to tell you 
the tour next year, 2020. The cities are coming in thick and fast. Later on today, myself and Griff are going to sit down and we're going to get a map out and we're going to see if we are going to come to a city near you. Um, if you haven't got those in, let us know on social media where you want us to go to. And if there's enough people wanting us to go, we will be there. But sooner, what have we got? October the 18th, we are at York Theatre Royal. Um, I'm just finalising a guest now, but tickets are selling. So go to yorktheatreroyal.co.uk, I believe it is, and snap a ticket, come and say hello, and we will say hello to you after uh, it's going to be a great night the live shows are always brilliant and it'd be lovely to see you there so i just want to say thank you so much for being here and sharing lem's story and uh get in touch with him he's he's always on social media i know he'd love to hear from you so until next week for episode 98 i've been craig parkinson he's been producer griff and this has been the two shot podcast take care of yourself Stay sound. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. Cheers.